Hey y'all, how you doing? Welcome to episode 3 of Talk Brown Now. I'm your host, Canon Culture Clap. And in this episode, our guest is a doctoral student named Samantha Jock. And she's studying gender, first in Bogota, Colombia, and then here in Medellin, Colombia. I'm really excited. The conversation spans race, class, and gender. So without any further ado, let's meet Samantha. You are you are completing a master's and, and doing the or you've already done so. I've done a master's. Oh boy. <laughs> and what was the educational trajectory uh, before the master's? Presumably there was an undergraduate. Yeah. And, and and so what was the trajectory of study here? Okay, so um, I'm from Canada. Okay. But I did my undergrad at New York University. Okay. And I studied anthropology with a minor in art history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um uh but yeah, my major was anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um and after college I didn't know what to do at first, but I was always interested in America, Latin America. Okay. So uh, about a year after I graduated from college, I started studying Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to the conversation okay. at hand. So, uh, so I started studying Spanish. Yes. Uh, and I moved. Well, I so I was interested in Latin America, and I think I had some vague idea that I wanted to go like work and volunteer somewhere in mm-hmm. Latin America, but I didn't really know where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. Um, but I had a good friend from college who is from Bogota, okay. so I contacted her and she told me to come spend New Year's Eve with her and her family, which I did. Yeah, so that was just an innocent week trip. <laughs> well, I knew that I was going to stay in Latin America, but I wasn't sure if I was going to stay in Colombia or stay in mm-hmm. Bogota or mm-hmm. move on. Okay. Um, and then after I got there, she was like, um, you know what, my sister, who I usually share my apartment with, is, is not here right now, so you can live in my apartment with me and I'll help you find a job, which was more or less true. <laughs> but I did find a job really fast. Cool. Uh, and I got a work visa and I ended up living in Bogota for a year and a half. All right. And while I was living in Bogota, I decided to uh, do a master's degree in gender studies and sociology. Um, And I decided to do it in Paris because when I was at NYU, I had done study abroad in Paris for two semesters. And um, I really wanted to live in Paris again because it's one of my favorite cities. All we need is the excuse sometimes. Exactly. Um, So I looked for gender programs in Paris and Mm -hmm. there were very few. Um, so I found one at the school that I am currently studying at, which is called the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, which is the School of Higher Studies in Social Sciences. Okay. Um, so they had a program, a master's degree in sociology with a focus on gender, called Gender, Politics, and Sexuality. Mm-hmm. So I applied for that program, and uh, to apply for the program, you had to already have a research project in mind. Okay. And so since I was living in Bogota while I applied, I decided to do a research project in Bogota. And what was the focus of that research project? Uh, so it was focused on uh, what we call in Spanish uh, los piropos. Okay. Uh, so. And what is that, please, if you could explicate a bit? So the word piropos, mm-hmm. uh, the translation would be compliment. 
Okay. Um, and it does mean that. Like, if mm-hmm. I say I like your shirt, you can say thank you for the piropo. <laughs> um, but more specifically, piropos callejeros, so street compliments, are what in the U.S. we might call catcalling uh, or even street harassment, depending on your point of view. And it's very, very common in Colombia. Yes. You can kind of tell that it is much more socially acceptable by the word that is used. Uh, I think catcalling has more of a negative connotation than compliments. Um, so it's kind of built into the word. And I started looking into it, and it turns out that there's like a history that may or may not be factual, that piropos were like a way of... of courtship in the 1600s in Spain that was supposed to be like polite and and creative. And yes. there's still like an ideal that piropos in Colombia are supposed to be creative. And you'll notice that. So when you walk down the street, you can hear any uh, of a large assortment of comments, if you are a woman, um, ranging from the original creative poetic mm-hmm. uh, commentary, for example, plays on words. Like, for example, you might say... Um, you, you drop something, and the woman says, what did I drop? And uh, Or no, something something fell. And the woman says, what what fell? And the man says, the, the paper that enrobes you, candy. Bon, bon. Okay. I mean, yes, the, 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 the translation is difficult, but yes. As I was speaking with another friend uh, earlier, we were talking about how English as a language has a considerable amount of precision. Uh-huh. And, and and could almost maybe, they, they refer to it as a code, whereas with the more romantic languages, such as French, Spanish, or Italian, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more availability for poetry. Yeah. And for that kind of wordplay. So, I mean, if we were to harken back to the 1600s and try to bring ourselves up to date, the possibility, the opportunity for wordplays may be more prevalent in yeah, I think that in Spanish. <laughs> and so, okay, I thought of a good example. The most classic piropo uh, in Colombia, from what I've learned from my research, would be um, if you cook the same way that you walk, I would eat your rice uh, till the bottom of the pot. Oh, that's just lovely. So, uh, depending <laughs> on who you ask, that might be considered vulgar or complimentary. Uh, I've talked to some women who would say, no, it's complimentary because I'm being complimented on the way I walk and the way I cook. Mm-hmm. And other women say, uh, no, that is vulgar and disgusting because uh, the mm-hmm. way I walk is being directly compared to the way I would be in bed because in Colombia, the word eat can also be used to mean have sex with. Yes. Um, so it's it's a play on words. Yes. It's a, what, what was the impetus for wanting to study gender studies? Um, well, I've always been interested in, in feminism, and I've always felt uh, touched by gender inequality, not because of any particularly traumatic experience I had, just like run-of-the-mill things. Like, yeah, we live in a man's world. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, let me study the dynamics under which I am constantly seeming to exist. Exactly. Yeah. So it's something that always interested in me. Interested me in college. I took a class called like race, gender, and sexuality or something mm-hmm. that I really liked. When I studied abroad in Paris, I studied mm-hmm. French feminism, which I thought was really interesting. And how is French feminism perhaps different from 
American spinners? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of famous, well, there are a few very famous feminists who are French. For example, Simone de Beauvoir. See. So she would be like one of the, uh, not one of the original, but one of the older feminists that everybody knows that famous quote, you are not born a woman, you become one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was uh, a, a trend in like the 70s and 80s of French material feminism. So people like Monique Wittig and uh, Delph- uh, Christine Delphi mm-hmm. are famous French feminists from that time period. So, But I actually was disappointed to discover when I arrived in France that gender studies is kind of behind there uh, compared to the U.S. So in like mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s, French feminism was like very advanced. And then uh, since then, it's kind of fallen behind, so to speak. And like gender studies as a discipline is way more developed in the U.S. and Canada than it is in France. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, we've, you have now since completed the master's. Yeah. Oh, and so, yeah, so I wasn't just studying piropos in general. No. I had, like, mm-hmm. a more specific research topic, which was, uh, the question I was asking is, how do piropos change women's experience of public space? Okay. Uh, and Colombian women, because one thing I noticed was that as a foreign woman, I received a lot of piropos. Uh, for people who can't see me, I'm blonde and white, and I stand out in mm-hmm. Colombia. Yep. Um, so sometimes I would get followed. Um, sometimes, and almost every time I went out, people would say things to me. And uh, I used to get really angry. Mm-hmm. One More than once, I like responded angrily by giving the finger or shouting at the person. And I noticed that when I did that, people looked at me like I was the weirdo and not the person who was, in my opinion, harassing me. Um, and I also noticed that Colombian women didn't seem to mind as much as I did. Yeah. So, so my question was like, uh, is this an acceptable cultural practice? Is this as annoying for them as it is for me? <laughs> um, and my hypothesis was that piropos limit women's access to public space, which I would say is correct, but it's also more complex than that. Could you delve into that complexity a little bit? Uh, yes. Please. So, um, so I want to say that I did this research in 2014. Mm-hmm. And 2014 was right after, um, right after the women's movement in Latin America started to talk about acoso callejero, which means street harassment. Okay. Um, so I think that things have changed a lot in the last five years. Um, yeah. Because before 2013, 2014, most people didn't talk about uh, harassment or acoso. Mm-hmm. It was kind of around the time that started to be talking about, talked about in the media. Yeah. It was around the time that the Argentine president, uh, current president at the time, he wasn't the president, mm-hmm. but he's the president now, uh, said publicly, all women love piropos, even when they say something vulgar, like, what a great ass you have, all women secretly like it. I'm paraphrasing that something like yes. that he said, there was like a huge backlash. Exactly. And that happened if I'm not, I think it happened in 2013, and I did my research in 2014. So, mm-hmm. so um, at the time, I wanted to... Uh, vary the the age and social class of people I spoke with. Okay. Um, I based my research on mainly on interviews, mm-hmm. and I did interviews with um, about fifty people. It yep. was about even between men and women. Okay. And for people who don't know, Colombia is divided into social strata. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one through six. So what this is is a way of subsidizing public services. So it's yes. supposed to be a way to 
um, to minimize, well, it's supposed to be a way to help people who have low, who have smaller incomes, mm-hmm. lower incomes. Yep. Uh, so if you are from strata six, you pay a higher rate for your uh, water and electricity and other public services. Same if you are in strata five. Mm-hmm. If you're in strata four, you pay the real cost. And if you're in strata one, two, or three, you have a subsidized right. rate. Thank you. Um, and uh, what was it? So you that? were interviewing people from all the breadth six. of okay, yeah, okay. That was, that was the plan mm-hmm. was to interview people from all six strata. Oh, and the this is based on where you live. <clears throat> so it's based on the yep. neighborhood and the quality of the materials used to build your dwelling. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, as anybody who's lived in Colombia knows, the strata, even though it's supposed to be just a way to subsidize public services, has become a way to classify people. Um, and it's really built into the culture. So people talk about people from a strata zero or seven or eight because they exaggerate. Exactly. And, uh, mm-hmm. They talk about like this park is for people from strata two, even though parks don't have strata. <laughs> but I mean, once again, it's, it, it continually interests me to see how in the Americas, North and South, they're both colonized lands. Mm-hmm. And and in America, you know, we have this notion of city on the hill with man of... Or in the United States, I should say. We have this notion of city on a hill, man of as destiny, we've progressed, so on and so forth. But now in Central and South America, it seems as though the long tail of colonialism still continues to play in in that uh, in North America social mobility is is uh, prized valued in theory but down here once again you seem to have something that I would say is almost similar to a caste system yeah, whereas yes exactly if you're from if, if you're from a strato you know one two or three it's like well, as we had talked about before, they even have different uh, 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 different songs. Yeah. Yes. You know? And, and exactly, exactly, you know? Oh, wow, you're singing that vulgar one from Estrato Dos. And, and then, you know, I mean, up in Indigado, yes, yes, we have our proper bailatos. And, and so, yeah, it's, 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 there's a very marked, marked, difference mm-hmm. um, between the social classes yes yeah and it's not so much the case in Medellin but in Bogota you can tell mm-hmm. what strato somebody's from by their accent oh um, in, in Medellin it's less pronounced but mm-hmm. in Bogota if you hear somebody speak you can kind of tell more or less what social class they're from yeah um, and I think that's true in other cities in Colombia as well mm-hmm. um, but that's not just Colombia it's all of America Latin America yeah uh-huh. um, like you said but it's also interesting uh, what you were talking about the difference between North and South America with the relationship with colonization mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think in in North America we're more likely to say like we the colonizers okay. or, yes whereas in South America they're more likely to say those fucking Spanish <laughs> Or, you know, like, we were colonized by the Spanish. Exactly. I mean, because we have this whole notion of mestizaje and and really trying to blur the lines while still saying we want to improve the race. Yeah. Yeah. 
I can only hope that this conversation is challenging you half as much as it's challenging me. And if you're enjoying the conversation, well, I'd really appreciate your support to keep on making them happen. I suppose the best way to find me is over on Twitter at twitter.com slash cultureclap. I got a link to a page with a couple of other links. You know how it goes. Keep it easy that way. Though I digress. Let's get back to the conversation. It's been... It, the, the, the phrase that I've heard that I'm also starting to see pushback on, I was, uh, I was meeting an individual uh, over in uh, a, a nicer part of, of town, dare we say, and, and the one individual was a little bit lighter skin tone than I. And as we were exiting where we were eating, the individual that I was with interacted with another individual who I would say maybe had 10 to 15, maybe 10 to 15 years older than us. And, and as we were exiting, the older gentleman wanted to signal to the gentleman that I was with, hey, stop, you know, I want to say goodbye. And he used the phrase, mi negro. Mi negro. Mi negro. And... Talking to the other person. Mm-hmm. Who really is not black. in Medellin. And either way... Okay, maybe... And, and that's maybe due to Medellin's proximity to Choco. I don't know why that is. Medellin is very particular in their use of mi negro y mi negra. I'm not sure if you've noticed. I haven't, because I've only really kind of noticed the backlash of it. Oh, I haven't noticed the backlash. Because they're, 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 and, and I think, that, I mean, the United States culturally still provides an incredible amount of export to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that, especially with the conversation of anti-blackness coming out of the United States, and then that being exported, um, uh, Individuals that I know have started to sell and wear t-shirts such as no, you can't touch my hair mm-hmm. and No, I am not your Negro there here 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 really? in Medellin. Yes, like um, Afro people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because because either way it just strikes me as arguably obscene you know what strikes you as arguably for non-black people to be referring to other black people as my negro Mm, yeah but i think there's something that's important to take into Mm -hmm. account which is that in medellin uh the word uh negro is really relative um so like if you're in a group of people and the one with the darkest skin is the negro so like if you've got a group of friends from high school um, and they're all white, and one of them has brown hair. The one who has brown hair, like dark hair, sorry. The one who's got the darkest hair is the negro of the group. And if they change groups, and then another person comes who's got darker skin, then that person is the negro. It's all relative. And another thing that I think is really interesting, and I'm talking about mm-hmm. Medellin. Yes, 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 absolutely. True in Bogota. Mm-hmm. Um, is mi negro is also a term of endearment used in couples. So, like, for example, when I first arrived, I lived with mm-hmm, a family, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I would call both of the members of the couple white in mm-hmm. my vision of, of mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. And they call each other negro and negra as, like, the way I would call my boyfriend babe. 
And, so it's very and, strange. And, and <laughs> it, I think it's incredibly strange. Because I think that some of the endearment comes to, is, is adjacent to a sense of possessiveness. That makes sense, yeah. And, and the other thing is, actually, I've had conversations with people where, because it is a very, it's a very slippery slope, especially for youth who love hip-hop, to go from my Negro to my N-word. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and that is where, with other individuals, uh, 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 black Colombians, it, it, when I speak to them, they are much more aware of those things. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and that's where, I mean, the, once again, when we're talking about especially race relations down here in, in Latin America and whatnot, this attempt to make ambiguous the racial delineations, I think, um, is, is an attempt to, to absolve oneself of the colonization that remains. I mean, because it is one of those things, I, I, you know, maybe there isn't necessarily a study per se, but, I mean, if one were to look at what is the median or mean skin tone mm -hmm. in Estrado, in, in, mm -hmm. in Estrado 6 mm -hmm. versus Estrado 1 or 2, I think that we would see a darkening as we went down Definitely. the Estratos. And, and so, I mean, once again, I mean, just these uses of language and, and especially as we're, you know, we, we can say that, oh, that is a very poetic way to conduct street harassment. <laughs> Yet, it's still street harassment, you know, and, and, and also, I mean, um, and, and then once again, I mean, with this term, with, with, these, with, with using the term mi negro or mi negra as, as a term of endearment, um, my sensibilities just tell me that I would never, ever do that. Mm -hmm. Just because it, it, it doesn't sit within my global framework of how history has played itself out on this dear planet Earth. Yeah, totally. You know, um, uh, but we've wandered a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't seem yes, like please. I definitely agree with what you're saying. And from the outside, I definitely think that... Mm -hmm. uh, that that is true um, and that these things haven't been unpacked enough but at the same time like I think it's interesting to see how in Colombia race is relative that's kind of changed yeah. my vision of race and I think you're right that it has its bad sides but it also shows us how subjective race is so like for example I have a friend here who says mm -hmm. like um, uh, I'm gonna go on a date with this hot Negro. And yes. I said, oh, show me a picture. And he showed me a picture and it was a guy who I would call Moreno or mm -hmm. like uh, mm -hmm. Mestizo. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I asked him, like, why did you say that he's Negro? Yeah. He's not. Like, this person <laughs> is not Afro. And he said, oh, I call myself Negro too. Like anybody who is Mestizo, I use the word Negro. And again, this is only in Medellin. I did my master's yeah. work in Bogota, mm -hmm, and I'm mm -hmm. doing my thesis work, my doctorate work in Medellin, so I'm noticing yeah. these differences. I never saw that in Bogota. Yeah. I have only seen it in Medellin. Um, and I mean, it is. It's, it's one of those things that... I, I remember hearing a story in Mexico City of a young girl who got lost 
and the cops found her, and she had fair skin, brown hair, and maybe green eyes or something like that. Uh-huh. And her parents came to go, her parents were like, where are you? Her parents came to pick her up. Uh-huh. And both of her parents had darker brown skin. Uh-huh. And the cops were like, there's no way in hell that you can be the parents. Wow. But... I mean, because once again, you know, it, it is perhaps one of those things down here in Latin America, well, just, I mean, just a lot of different ways, but um, there was a lot of genetic mixing Yeah. that has happened. And I mean, oftentimes, you know, uh, it, it's, um, you know, two parents can, can have a particular appearance and their children will have a, 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 a large diversity of appearances. Yeah. You know, which I mean, once again, um, really speaks to how how it is possible that there could be this greater semantic fluidity mm-hmm. within within Latin American culture of how it is that these words are used, interpreted, and and so on and so forth, especially within the context. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and it's also not just a recent colonization, but also slavery, because I think a lot of people don't uh, have in take into account that there was slavery in Colombia yeah. and in other parts mm-hmm. of Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Afro the Afro population are descendants of, of slaves. They're yep. not descendants of, of Native Americans. Yeah. Or, you know, Americans. Indigenous Americans, yes. And, 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 and I mean, once again, it is... Uh, I, I, it, I quote the number, I need to double and triple check it, but I believe it was in 1997 that in Colombia... Indigenous and Afro-Colombians received explicit civil rights. I think that was 1991. 91, okay. Uh, yeah, because it could be because the new constitution was implemented in 1990. And maybe it was following up on the heels of that. And then I remember, it, I believe it was 2015, that there was a concerted push by the government to recognize the contributions of Afro-Colombians. Oh, cool. And so that was kind of like on this, uh, on the national level, to say that, okay, um, there is a particular demographic that is, uh, that, that, that deserves recognition. Mm-hmm. And, and we are going to do that from, from a governmental standpoint, which, um, I, you know, is maybe part and parcel of some of the changes that we are now starting to see kind of pop up with, like you were saying, you know, um, well, well, I am interested to hear, let's get back to this. You, you, you interviewed about 50 people oh, yeah. okay. from across the Stratos mm-hmm. and, and, and what did, what did you find? So uh, my goal was to figure out how women and men experience public space differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had in the interviews I did, I, I had I asked people to do a mapping activity where I showed them a map of Bogota, mm-hmm. and I asked them to code the map with different colors to show me where they spent the majority of their time and where they avoided going because they considered it to be dangerous. Um, And I was expecting, uh, naively, I was expecting to see large differences between men and women. Um, But I didn't. I saw large differences between the social classes, um, Mm -hmm. regardless of gender. Mm -hmm. So in Bogota, the city is divided into localities. And there are two localities that are upper class, which Mm -hmm. are called Usaquen and Chapinero. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about Bogota is that the north is pretty much unanimously considered to be um, safer. Mm -hmm. And the South is pretty much unanimous, unanimously considered to be 
more dangerous mm -hmm. and same for east and west east is more the northeast is the safest part and then the south and the west is supposed to be more dangerous which is true if you look at statistics yes um, and um so I found that people from a strato like five and six, they had a very, very reduced uh, bubble where they spent their time, which was Chapinero Nusekan yep. in the north. And the rest of the city, they would either mark as dangerous or they would say, I think it's dangerous over there, but I don't know because I never go there because I would never have any reason to go there. Because exactly. in Bogota, you can work in the north because the center moved, the center of economic activity moved from the actual center of the city to the north. Mm -hmm. So if you work in a bank or a multinational company, it's probably located in the north. Yep. So people can uh, spend their leisure time, their work time, and their home time all in these two neighborhoods. Whereas if you talk to people from who live in other neighborhoods in Bogota, uh, they had a much larger range where they went because a lot of these people work in the rich neighborhood and live in poorer neighborhoods. Um, and they might spend time in the center to buy things because yeah. the, the historic center, not the economic center, because mm -hmm. the historic center is where you can get cheap mm -hmm. um, goods. goods. Yep. So they had a much larger range mm -hmm. of activity and they also had a much more precise idea of what which neighborhoods or even street corners were dangerous. So people who were from Estrato 1 or 2, for example, might say, um, I live on this street in this neighborhood and this street three or four blocks away is dangerous and I avoid it. Um, yeah. Where so, so that was the biggest difference was between social class. And 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 then and 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 in this you were also investigating uh, what was the term for catcalling? Piropos. Piropos. Yes. And 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 what were the reflections from that with your interviewees? Um, so the reflections from that were that um, people from upper classes had a more negative general opinion of the practice. So like if you would ask an upper class person like about piropos in general, they would probably express a negative point of view. Okay. Whereas not all, but much more people from lower classes were not as negative about it. So some somebody, men and women from mm -hmm. a lower class might say like, ah, there are bonitos and groseros. So that would mean uh, beautiful and rude. Yep. So like in English, we might say there are nice compliments and rude <laughs> exactly. compliments. Um, so it was like a more nuanced uh, view of opinion. It. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. This is for men and women. Yes. And then men in the upper classes, if you would say like, have you ever done that? They would be like, what? No, are you kidding? No, I would never do that. That's like something that a construction worker would do. I wouldn't do that. And then if you talk to somebody from a lower class, they would say, yeah, of course, uh, I've done that. It's a nice thing to do. Um, I tell a woman if I think she's beautiful because it's nice. And yeah. sure, there exists, uh, rude piropos exist. But uh, I don't do that. Exactly. <laughs> Other yeah. people do that. But <laughs> I don't. Um, Women from the upper stratos, what were their perceptions of Piropo? So like I said, most of them uh, had a general negative opinion about it. Okay. Like, I don't like it. I wish it didn't happen. Okay. But their specific experiences were often not that negative. So if you asked about their specific experiences, they would say like, oh, you know, like they say things that are quote unquote nice, but I don't like it because it's coming from somebody I don't know. Or, yeah, people say that, but I don't really notice. Uh, okay. it, I, like, they're just some idiots saying what they want and I don't really care. 
Whereas uh, when you talk to women from lower classes, they would have uh, stronger opinions in general. So they would say like, um, yeah, sometimes it's really uncomfortable and really mm -hmm. intimidating and I hate it. Yeah. And other times it's really nice. Or some lower class women had negative opinions of the practice in general mm -hmm. and they had specific examples of really terrible things men had said to them. Yeah. Like one example was like, um, I see you walk by every day and I really want to fuck you or something like that. Like some really uh, vulgar, explicit things that had been yeah. said to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas the upper class women, uh, for example, uh, I had a conversation with a woman where I said, why do you think men do that? Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't know. I think it's probably to intimidate us. And I said, and does it work? Do you feel intimidated? And she said, intimidated? Pfft, no. Uh, I think they're a bunch of idiots. It, like for her it was almost absurd the idea that she could feel intimidated by this type of behavior interesting and then i talked to lower class women where uh remember they're women who are living in neighborhoods that they themselves consider to be dangerous yes who spend time in neighborhoods that they don't necessarily feel comfortable in precisely and they uh expressed feeling intimidated by these uh comments so one thing that i was trying to unpack in my master's degree was how our perception and experience of public space influences our perception and experience of the interactions we have in those spaces. So uh, one of the conclusions I came to in my master's uh, research was that uh, upper-class women in Bogota are able to have a large amount of control over their interaction with public space. Uh, so they're able to use cars if they want to, and mm -hmm. they're able to stay in neighborhoods where they feel relatively comfortable. Um, and that allows them to maintain a certain control over what happens when they go out. A certain sense of control. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then lower class women, they don't have those options. They can't afford to have a car. Uh, they might have a moto, mm -hmm. like a motorcycle. Um, and they often have to take public transportation and walk to and from uh, the public transportation. They also are likely to have uh, very long commutes, yep. like between an hour and two hours, which means that they're likely to get home after dark and have to walk home from the bus station in a neighborhood that might not be safe. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine that the same comment mm -hmm. uh, might have a very different impact depending between on 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. And also in Rosales Chapinero mm -hmm. and in Ciudad Bolivar. Exactly. Uh, which is the north and south of, of Bogota. So, um, we, we got the masters and now we're working on the doctorate. Yes. All right. So, and, and, we're st and, and you're still studying a, a, a similar conversation, but what's the focus now or what's the evolution of this? Uh, so, I'm still studying access to and perceptions of public space mm -hmm. with a focus on gender and class relations. Yep. Um, I'm trying to also continue the focus on interactions, mm -hmm. um, but a little less focused on just just uh, piropos. So I'm yes. trying to unpack the way different people um, interact while they're in public space. Um, yes. And I'm trying to kind of tease out the differences between um, caballerismo, so like mm -hmm. what would we, we would say in English, like gallantry, I think. Okay, yeah, uh, chivalry. Chivalry, exactly. Um, and harassment, <laughs> which, Damn straight. which can be actually a finer line than one might think. 
Um, so that's one of the things that I'm trying to unpack. Yes. Um, I'm also trying to to continue looking at how social class and gender affects people's access to public space. Um, and I switched from Bogota to Medellin for a few different reasons. Um, one is because a lot of people told me that machismo and specifically piropos are stronger or more prevalent in Medellin than mm -hmm. in Bogota. In Bogota they say that they have got a more Andina, yes. uh, like higher altitude uh, Andes mountains um, culture and Medellin is a little more tropical <laughs> because there's uh, more there's been more immigration from the coast yeah um, some people in Bogota even told me that they thought piropos in Medellin were nicer were more poetic <laughs> were were more uh, were better and other people told me that they were worse <laughs> <laughs> Um, Who knows? People have opinions. But people tended to agree, um, and I'm talking about scholars as mm -hmm. well as uh, just Lay citizens, people. Mm -hmm. that um, machismo is stronger in Medellin than in Bogota. And what are you finding? I would agree with that. Okay. Um, and the other thing is that Medellin is smaller, so it's much easier to manage. <laughs> yes. So for somebody like me who's trying to study uh, social class, yeah. it's much more manageable in Medellin where I can be in the south, which is the rich part of Medellin, it's the opposite is yep. from Bogota. Um, I can be in the south in the morning and then take the metro and arrive in the north in an hour. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. in Bogota, to do that same commute, it takes at least an hour and a half, if not two. I'm so thankful for every time that Samantha felt able to push back on my own conversation. After all, is that not what a conversation is? And if you're enjoying the conversation and would like to hear more, well, I'd really appreciate your support to keep them going. As a matter of fact, this is the last episode in the inaugural season of Talk Brown Now. I do suppose the best way to find me is over on Twitter, twitter.com slash culture clap. I got a link to a little program over there called the F500, the first 500. And what do you know? Still got a couple of spots left. It's monthly contributions and you get an inside view on what's going on in the world of culture clap. Dream freely and scream freely. So I digress and let us return to conversations with Samantha about complimentary street harassment. Whatever the hell that might be. In your research, uh, ob observing interactions, um, anything of note that you've... I think that we can say, or well, the hypothesis that I'm trying to um, investigate mm -hmm. is that the way uh, people behave in public space is one of the things that um, constructs and maintains gender gender yes um, so you can okay. actually notice that if you look at how public space is used and also how people interact with each other in those spaces so this is not uh, an original idea other people have studied the same thing mm -hmm. there are lots of feminist geographies uh, geographers excuse me um, for example Daphne Spain is one okay and the uh, older ones mm -hmm. um, where 
you look at the way space is used by men and women, public spaces, and if you go to like a park in Colombia uh, and you count how many men and women are present, present in the park, uh, you are almost guaranteed to have more men than women. Yes. And that's not just in Colombia, that's all over the place. Um, even where I live in Paris, uh, there are lots of places where you can see a lot of men using public space in a leisurely way, like sitting on a bench and talking to each other, or playing um, what we, what's called pétanque, but it's mm -hmm. like lawn bowling, essentially. Lavinette. Uh You can see a lot of men, especially older men, using space in that way, and you see very few women using space in that way. If you see women using public space in a leisurely way, especially in Colombia, but all over the world, uh, they are likely with a child or with a man, or they are not using space in a leisurely way. They're using space to get from point A to point B. Or I'll, yes, okay, yes, yes. So one of the ways that we see the way gender uh, is constructed in public spaces is the way space is organized and used. Okay. Um, and if you think about it, if you go to a park as a woman, and this park has 20 men in it who are sitting on mm -hmm. benches and only five women, uh, then that's going to change the way you might feel about the space and it's also going to make it much more likely that the men will say things to you. Um, yeah. So, so one of the interactions that I'm talking about is of course uh, harassment or mm -hmm. catcalling or piropos or whatever you want to call it. Uh, even if we can argue that piropos are sometimes uh, positive, and I think for some people they are, mm -hmm. it still is a reminder that the women are objects of attraction and men are uh, people who are to be attracted. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, I mean, kind of go to this other conversation, I think I'd actually like to take that, that I, I, th I think that gives a little bit too much credit. I think that pedobos are our means of asserting possession and that the, the corollary of that would be that men are to be the rightful possessors. Yeah, uh-huh. But I think that uh, one thing that I've noticed in my research is that uh, piropo is a really broad term. Yes. And so I think we can say that harassment is about possession. Um, but in Colombia, there's a lot, there's a much wider range of interactions that happen between men and women. Mm -hmm. And there's a much wider range of interactions that women find acceptable. Yes. Uh, so... so so, for example, a lot of women have told, have told me that if a man says to them in a way that they don't perceive to be morboso, so mm -hmm. perverted, mm -hmm. um, like, you look nice today, mm -hmm. they don't find that offensive or, or unpleasant. Yes. And I've even experienced it myself. Um, <laughs> when I lived in Bogota, I found all of this attention that I got from men extremely unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But through studying it, I kind of learned to see it in a different light um, and so what happens to me a lot in Medellin I'm also five years older now so I think that may change the way men interact with me mm -hmm. or more when I lived in Medellin it, when I lived in Bogota it was 2012 so I'm six years old seven seven years old <laughs> numbers are fascinating thing um, so if, uh, what happens to me on almost a daily basis is some man says to me you have beautiful eyes mm-hmm and I think if somebody had said that to me when I lived in Bogota, I probably would have been irritated. Um, but now I just say thank you. Uh, and I keep walking and it doesn't really bother me. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of women have told me that like things like that that are directed at uh, parts of your body that are not sexualized, mm -hmm. uh, they don't find offensive. 
So I don't think a man saying uh, you have beautiful eyes is necessarily possession. I think that might fall under uh, chivalry. Yes. So I think it's a little bit more complex. Um, but absolutely. I agree. A absolutely. I mean, because once again, we, we, we can't get away from the innate animalistic nature of our identity. Okay, I mean, when you're with, you know, there's, you're watching the Nature Channel, and you got this bird that's just doing this big ornate dance mm -hmm. for a woman, mm -hmm. for, for, for a female bird, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of the same thing on down, you know, to maybe that chivalry aspect, or maybe to go back to that poetic aspect, and we maybe we want to go down to that 1600s aspect, we would say, you know, what is the difference between the compliment that you got here on block A versus the compliment you got on block B? Well, hopefully the person on block B said something that's more poetic. Yeah. They said something that's more poetic and more intellectually engaging to to get that attraction. Mm -hmm. To say, you know, oh, this person said something very interesting and memorable and poetic, you know, and so I want to interact with that person. Mm -hmm. um, and go ahead. Well, no, and and then and and then of the same accord, you know, um, it, it's. It, it, it's, it's as we were talking about before, the, the end goal, in theory, is partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's how that partnership is then negotiated. Mm -hmm. Is that partnership, yo, you got a nice ass and Lord knows I'm going to clap that shit. <laughs> or is it, um, you know, I, you know, I appreciate your smile and that's something I'd like to see every morning beside my sunlight, mm -hmm. you know, something to that effect. And, 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 and there, that, that is maybe representative of a very large spectrum, mm -hmm. which all has the same end objective. Maybe. The end objective is to be able to have a conversation that lasts. Yeah, but then there are also piropos where that's definitely not the objective because well, they say openly offensive things. And what I'm saying, well, and, and, and that's where, okay, it, yeah. it, depending on how long the relationship or conversation lasts, I guess, is, yeah. is, is definitely not open, to, not open to interpretation. But, I mean, the, the idea is to have... Uh, An interaction. Exactly. Yeah. You know. I would just be, I would just mm -hmm. be careful about using the word innate and natural. Um, and making comparisons to the animal kingdom because I would argue that mm -hmm. these are cultural uh, roles that are enforced by our behavior. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah. this isn't something that no, we can no, prove, no, no, no. but I, I wouldn't argue that, uh, I wouldn't argue that it's natural nor innate. I would say that it's learned behaviors and that it's part of what gender uh, is constructed of and from and by. And I guess I kind of, when I'm going back to the, it, I, and I go more towards innate of, of being people, the, the, the innate animalistic aspect of procreating mm -hmm. and, and, and finding a way to do that. Right. Okay. Yeah, you yeah, know, that's, that's kind of more what I would go back okay, to. Yeah, and, sense. and the means that we have, that we have culturally learned to do that uh -huh. are, you know, the, there, there's myriad of, of ways that, that that happens in different cultures. And in this particular culture um, that we are now speaking of, which would be specifically the Colombian, Paiso, or Bogotano culture, um, you know, yes, it, that 
these we we are looking at the different learned ways mm -hmm. of of in in one manner or the other following up on those uh, instincts. Yeah, and another thing that I'm trying to look mm -hmm. at. Sorry, a little no, off topic, it. but uh, is that I think that the. And I mean, this isn't an original idea. Some people mm -hmm. have said this to me in interviews, but I think that it holds water. Is that it's also affirmations of heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, so, like in Colombia, there's like the ideal of the macho, yes. like, and a macho is a man who who is able to, um, how do we say this in English, conquistar. Um, able to provide. No, uh, conquest is able to. Um, to conquistar is the word is the verb for conquest yes so yes a man and, and i'm trying to figure out how it is that we're going to interpret that into english um, as to what you're talking so like, about so like in colombia it's 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 often so it's about chasing the man oh, who yes. chases the woman and who wins her over um but in colombia we use the, this word yep. that mm -hmm. evokes conquest so it's a little stronger yep um so a macho man is able to um get a lot of women and is interested in women and is definitely, definitely heterosexual. heterosexual. Oh yeah. So, so uh, by catcalling, um, men are kind of affirming that they are heterosexual, that they're interested in women, and if they get a positive response, it's also showing that they can be successful in their pursuits of women. So it's, I think it's definitely also like a way of affirming heterosexuality. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say that another thing that we see in public space, um, so like there are these very overt signs of like who the men are and who the women are with the catcalling, yep. mm -hmm. and there are also less overt signs. So for example, in Medellin, there's a street called Carabobo, mm -hmm. which is a, a pedestrian street, and it's lined with people who are selling jeans, mm -hmm. and they try to entice passersby to come to the uh, bodega, to the mm -hmm. like factory no to the, to the store mm -hmm. to try on jeans um and if you watch them and you listen to what they say you'll see that their way of approaching men and women is very different so if they go up to a man they'll say things like uh boss or yeah. gentleman mm -hmm. or um friend yeah or uh, some partner yeah. mm -hmm. and if they go up to a woman they'll say things like um, princess or queen or beautiful um, mm -hmm. so it's a very different vocabulary and also they're more likely to touch women um, so with a man yes. they might touch their shoulder but mm -hmm. it's not as likely and with women they'll often grab their hand or their arm uh, and try to like physically uh, pull them toward yeah. the shop not strong just like a slight tug mm -hmm. but they're much more liberal with touching women's bodies yep. um, and than they are with touching men's bodies mm -hmm. uh, and another thing you can see is if you go to the parquejeres which is where a lot of the clubs are in Medellin mm -hmm. and you watch the promoters who are trying to get people to come inside the club it's really interesting to see how they act with women with men and with couples um, and if it's a couple they're much more likely if it's a male promoter they're more likely to talk to the man yes. than the woman and I think that's multiple things going on. One is a sign. One is because it's the man who, who is expected to spend money. Yep. Uh, and another thing is they don't want the man to think that they are hitting on his woman. So it's the possession thing. Yeah. Uh, and I actually talked to a woman uh, who worked in a hostel in 
Medellin mm -hmm. or in a hotel or something. She worked at reception yep. and her boss told her if a couple comes in, you talk to the woman because we Colombian women are very jealous and if you talk to the man, the woman is going to think that you are macking on her man and she's going to get mad. And my friend who told me this story, she's quite feminist and she mm -hmm. thought that's bullshit. But when she tried it out, she found that it was true. <laughs> In at least one instance. It's, so. it, 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 is, it is one of these things where I've also heard um, and, and am aware of. Um, and, and I wonder how much of this is a carryover of colonization. I wonder how much of it is also just the way that we have learned gender over the past millennia or two, um, there's a lot of jealousy. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of jealousy. Yeah. And, and, and that again, just kind of, I think that that definitely influences me to, to look at these ideas of possessiveness kind of through that light of, of I mean, um, the, when we look at machismo, and, and we look at some of this other stuff and, and we even look to it even as we were talking about how the city is perhaps organized. You know, this is a country, this is a land where might makes right. Mm -hmm. And if you are able to be that machismo who is able to control and possess. I mean, even for women, there could maybe be some semblance of protection within that. Mm-hmm, there definitely is. You know? So it's like, my man protects me. What are you doing fucking with him? Yeah. You know? Um, and, you know, and, and of the same accord, this is my woman, what are you doing trying to talk to her? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and, and, and yeah, I think that that definitely plays hugely into the, di in, into the dynamics, which is very interesting. And also, like we were saying earlier, like the, the, the stereotype of a macho man is a man who has more than one woman. So if the stereotype of the macho man is, is uh, not faithful, then maybe that is also something that uh, plays, that, that makes people more jealous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, huh, all right, all right, so, uh, what, 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 what is the, uh, you, you've got a couple more weeks here of doing your research, one more week here, yeah. all righty then. Of this stage in my research. So what stage are you at in your research? That is a very good question. <laughs> so, I was We will not send this to those who will be judging the <laughs> dissertation. So this is my second um, my second round of field work. So I okay. did I did some field work last year. Yep. Um, and now I'm doing some more, and I'll probably come back and do some more again. Okay. Um, so I think I've got at least two years to go. <laughs> All right. All righty then. Um, trying to think any any other lasting questions that I have, or any other la and any other comments that you want to kind of just that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to, to make note of, given the conversations we've had? Mm. Well, I think that, you know, uh, one thing that I'm trying to, to deal with in my research and that I think is important for 
people to keep in mind is the whole intersectionality idea. So I think one thing that I really saw with my master's research and that I'm trying to keep in mind now is that you can't easily separate gender from social class um, and that you only really uh, understand the full scope of inequality if you look at those things together. Mm -hmm. One of the shortcomings of my research currently is that I haven't managed to uh, I haven't managed to include race in it, uh -huh. um, just because I haven't had access to, I, I haven't had access to very mixed race communities, uh -huh. and I've talked to very few Afro people, unfortunately, uh -huh. um, so it's not something that I've been able to address fully yet. Yep. Um, ideally, I'll find a way to work that in eventually, but we'll... We'll see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's really important to, to keep in mind how multiple hierarchies uh, play a role. What has been your experience or insight with catcalling in France? Hmm. Well, in both contexts, um, the men who are supposed to be the catcallers or the culprits mm -hmm. are the men who have the least power. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, and I think that's another Rephrase thing. that again. What, 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 I, I think that I understood you, but I'd like you to kind of rephrase. What, what did you say again? Uh, so in both contexts, in Colombia and France, the men who uh, society assumes to be the authors of catcalling are the men in society with the least power. So in Colombia, that translates to men who are poor. The construction worker that travels from the south side of Bogota to the north side to do construction or to do janitorial work, they're the ones who are perceived to do the catcalling. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, and in France, it's uh, racialized men, so okay. um, especially North African or Sub-Saharan African men. Um, so immigrants and mm -hmm. racialized men who are often also uh, poorer. Mm -hmm. from lower class neighborhoods. Yep. They are also assumed to be the culprits. Assumed? Uh, and so what, are we, what, what have you experienced in practice then? Uh, in practice, I find that I have been harassed by men of all colors and stripes. But it's true that it happens in different spaces. <laughs> so one of the most unpleasant uh, harassment experiences I've had in Paris was a man slapped my ass. I slapped my butt mm -hmm. <laughs> um, twice and I was in a bar and it was an expensive bar in a upper class neighborhood. Uh, not a super upper class neighborhood, but it was not a lower class neighborhood. Uh, I didn't see who did it, but there were mostly white men in the bar. <laughs> and I didn't see who did it because it was really crowded and um, that's why the person was able to do it twice. Yeah. So it's true that I didn't see the person, so I don't know who it was. But I mean, um, the same accord, it, yeah, that it, the context, where it all happened, and I mean, once again, as we had said, the assumed culprit is this individual, and yet at the same time, there was a very distinct incident mm -hmm. where the probability of the presumed culprit... Slimmed in <laughs> Arguably infeasible. <laughs> But uh, but I've been harassed by, by racialized men as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what we're taking away from this is that around the world, if you're a guy, the probability of you being a jackass is not slim to none, <laughs> but conversely quite the opposite. 
Go fucking figure. Um, We're not hating men here. We just understand that they're largely assholes. Yeah, but I think it's an important thing to keep in mind with like recent discussions about um, laws against Mm -hmm. street harassment in particular. Um, There are laws against this now in France. Or elsewhere. Yes, uh, um, there are laws against this in Holland, in Belgium, in France, in Peru, in Chile, and in Argentina. Oh my! So there are laws that are specifically targeting street harassment, not sexual harassment. So it's interesting to get to take into account that uh, when laws are made specifically against street harassment, um, it's important to keep in mind who is going to be affected by these laws the most mm-hmm. and who is going to have the power to decide how to uh, wield these new powers. Yes. Um, yes. It's like we have um, in, in the U.S. Uh, loitering and panhandling laws. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is meant to keep the black people <laughs> away from the commercial areas of the downtown neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying that that street harassment is something that governments should um, condone, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, you have to be careful about the way you do it. And when this law was enacted in France, which was quite recent, it was September 2018, I believe, um, a lot of French feminists signed a letter came, that came out against this new law. And one of the things they pointed out is that there are existing laws that could be used to punish what we would call street harassment. Um, But these existing laws are not being used. And uh, the new one is is able to stigmatize a very particular group of men. Yeah. Yeah. So those things are important to keep in mind. And that's valid, Mm -hmm. I think, in Colombia as well. We have to think about what happens when these international anti-street harassment movements are adopted or not adopt, I mean, are arrive in, in mm-hmm. Latin America and are appropriated here and changed to fit the context because that's what we've seen happening with a lot of the feminist groups. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind how cultural context is important and how when we talk about harassment, uh, harassment takes place in all kinds of spaces. So why are we targeting the harassment that takes place in the street? And I mean, on the one side, it's because the street is the most democratic place. That's and that's where I'm, the most public interaction occurs. Yes. Yeah, and that's why I'm interested in studying it. I mean, if we don't have equal access to the street, then what do we have equal access to? Yeah. So I think it's important to keep in mind that the street should be a place that's that's uh, equal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, when we when we target the men who harass in the street, uh, we are not targeting the men who harass in the, the office. office or the government building or or the school a, or, or the university. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Samantha. I look forward to hearing how the research progresses. I'd also like to thank my dear friend, the Cosmic Yak, for the audio doctoring you've done to this episode. And to the rest of y'all, thank you so very much for joining me. Till next time, safe travels.